If you are using a pew Bible in the pew in front of you, you will find it on page 230. 230. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And Pastor Tilly, we continue our series through uh, this wonderful historical book of the history not only of Israel, but of our God's story of redemption to us. And I'm going to begin with verse 1 uh, to kind of tie in to what we looked at last week. So 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse uh, 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would turn to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded of the necessity of consistent and constant prayer, Lord. Not just so we can be delivered from our enemies, but Lord, that, that you have commanded us to have fellowship with you. That this is about a relationship. And so Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that your word and the study of your word would not be something that, that we would use as the Israels did the ark 
or it's just a good luck charm, or it's just something we do out of tradition each Sunday. But Lord, we would come to your word this morning with heavy hearts, hungry hearts, soft hearts that are ready to receive the teaching of your word, and that you would use your servant as he depends and wholly leans upon you and teaching that we would be changed and transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Food is love. That is the case <clears throat> in any capacity. Uh, this is one of the most loving congregations that I have ever been part of. I mean, just watching these uh, emails come across with, you know, take a meal here, take a meal there, take a meal everywhere. I mean, you may as well just put a meal in your car because you're probably going to drive past a house where somebody needs a meal <clears throat> this week. Isn't that about what it feels like? And yet, what a blessing it is to serve. And not only that, but then to come together over this, uh, these last couple of days and provide more than enough food for Wanda's fam Merlin's family and Wanda and the rest of her family for their funeral dinner and then for Michelle and Abdul and all of their family and friends who were here, to have all of those meals, to have meals that were going elsewhere, to have food and festivities at the same time that we are grieving the loss of life here, uh, to know that up in the student center there was a celebration of new life, uh, the baby of Aubrey Shell, and more food was there. And it, it just is a, a testament. I want to just praise the Lord for the way that He is using all of you to minister to one another. I know, quite frankly, that it can get overwhelming. I suggested to Susan one time, I said, you should sign up for the same day for every one of these folks and just make like six pot pies and just go on a circuit, you know, and just like, it's like DoorDash, you know, we'll just, we'll just DoorDash it to your house. Um, and I know it is uh, a great deal of food and, and uh, but you are, you are blessing one another in ways that are wonderful. Do not grow weary in doing good, all right? Um, as we come to this text this morning, I want to just, uh, just mention a phrase that maybe you've heard uh, often, and it is this one, something has to change. Something has to change. Four words that basically mean that you, we are discontent with how things are, and there is a longing for something better, for the way things could be, for the way things should be, that if, if things keep going as they are, they may very well fall apart or there could be disaster. Such words could be spoken about an individual's life or about a relationship or about a business or about a church, and quite frankly, every four years, one political party or another is saying it about our nation, aren't they? Something has to change. But the whole idea of something needing to change is one that is rooted and is one of the chief messages of the Bible. Human beings need to change because we're broken, and we're broken because of sin. 
See, God made us in His image to have fellowship with Him, but we have sinned, rebelled against Him, broken His law, and as a result, we are the ones who are broken. And we are set on a trajectory headed straight for eternal punishment. Something has to change. In fact, the whole direction of our lives, our thoughts, our desires, our wills must be changed. We must turn, turn away from sin, turn back to God. Certainly something we cannot do on our own without the Lord's help, but this is what the Bible calls repentance. God calls for repentance in the Old Testament over and over and over again most clearly in the prophets. So through Hosea, the Lord says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In the New Testament, repentance was a chief piece of Jesus Christ's preaching. He went about preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he passed on that message to his apostles so that Peter preached it, Paul preached it, James preaches it in his letter. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces repentance, produces death, sorry. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that, actually, that one phrase is something we see played out in the story that we just read. Because you see, when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, we've just finished three chapters of absolute chaos because the Israelites have done nothing but dishonor the Lord. The priests have made light of Him and made their priestly work out to be self-serving. The people use the ark as a good luck charm. It goes to the Philistines. They break out in tumors. It comes back. The people treat it like a museum piece rather than, a, than the representation of the, the presence of their holy God. And things go terribly. Something has to change. And in the story we just read, something does. Isn't that wonderful? They weren't too far gone. Isn't that good to know? It's good to know that they weren't too far gone. This nation repents, and what they find is a merciful God who responds to their repentance by saving them. That's actually our main idea. God responds. God mercifully saves repentant sinners. God mercifully saves repentant sinners. Sinners. And actually, as we work through the rest of this chapter, I want to use Paul's words as a guide for us godly grief, repentance, and salvation. All right? So, first, godly grief. Now, grief was nothing new to the Israelites. You remember how God responded to their sin in the last chapter, don't you? People died. People died. And as their funerals were being planned, people grieve. Look at chapter 6, verse 19, the last sentence. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord 
struck the people with a great blow. Now, grief over death is something that we all experience. It's something we experienced even this week within our church body. But these deaths were the direct result of the nation's sin. Now, pause. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, it can seem very extreme for people to die because they dishonored God. Doesn't that seem extreme? What we fail to remember, and what I would help you to understand, and what I would want you to see is actually that sin is that extreme. It's not that God overreacts to a minor offense, you see. It's that the offense is awful, that any minor offense against God is a major offense. It is an extreme offense because the smallest of offenses, uh, the measure of our offense is not actually within the offense itself, is also measured by who it's against. So, if my nine-year-old son, I've used this before, if my nine-year-old son kicks his brother, that's one thing, right? If he kicks me, it's something altogether different. If he kicks a police officer, it's altogether something different. If he kicks the president, I mean, you see what's happening? Like your mind goes, wait a second, what's happening here? You see, the greater honor that is due to the one who is sinned against, the greater the sin actually is. So it may seem extreme, but it's actually fitting. The wages of sin is death, and these physical deaths actually point to, in a broader sense, to the spiritual death that all sin deserves. So here they are grieving, but in the end, their grief was the wrong kind of grief. Their grief would fit what Paul called worldly grief, a grief that's patterned after the world's way of thinking, that's aimed at me because of what I've lost, because of how I'm suffering, because of how my life is affected. That's why they want to get rid of the ark rather than repent in chapter 6, because they're just concerned about how their sin is affecting them and how to get away from the consequences. You see, worldly grief does reach out for some kind of change, doesn't it? But it's never the right change. It's never the change that God wants. It's just an attempt to try and fix my experience in this life. Worldly grief doesn't seek peace with God. It may seek all kinds of other peace, and it may even seek peace within oneself, but it's not actually real peace or lasting peace. I've illustrated this before, but I want you to imagine that I'm hobbling along on a broken leg, and I'm walking toward a cliff where when I walk off, I will fall to my certain death. And what I do is I decide what I need to do is bandage my leg and use a splint and take some painkillers. But if I keep walking in the same direction, all I'm doing is feeling better as I walk to my certain death. That is what worldly grief will get you. You may feel better in the moment, but the direction toward death doesn't change, so it's not actually better in the long run. You see, it's not actually better because the direction of your life is still wrong. This is why Paul says worldly grief produces death. This grief is because the Lord struck them. Not actually because of their sin, you see. But now when we get to verse 2, we're 20 years later. 
And things have actually changed. Look at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented after the Lord. This is actually a word that's used in other places to speak of following the Lord. In other words, their lament is a pursuit of God. You see what was happening in chapter 6 is we got to get as far away from this God as we possibly can. And now a different kind of grief has set in as they are lamenting toward the Lord. They are lamenting after Him. Now they can see after two decades of the ark being gone, after every day and week and month going to worship and knowing the ark is not here, the very visible symbol of the presence of God is not here, God in His kindness stirs up in them a grief because they are not with the Lord. And they come to realize that suffering from God isn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is their sin against God. Sin is worse than suffering. Now, that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. One of my family members lost his best friend in the tornado that swept through Middle Tennessee this week. You mean to tell me it's it's worse than that? I mean, suffering is right up on us, isn't it? We see it. We feel it. We're crushed by it. How is sin worse than suffering? Well, let me help. Eternal punishment does not wait for those whose suffering was never relieved. Eternal punishment waits for those whose sin is not forgiven. Suffering can never send you to an eternity in hell, but sin can. Suffering can kill the body, if you will, but sin can drag both body and soul into hell. So now just consider, but go back. Which is worse? Which is worse? Which disturbs you more? Just think about your own life. Which disturbs you more? Which brings you more sorrow, more anguish, Is it suffering or is it your sin? Which do you want to escape more? Which seems like the greater burden that needs to be lifted? Is it your suffering or is it your sin? You see, the answer to those questions will help reveal whether our sorrow is worldly or godly. Only godly sorrow leads to repentance. And that's the second thing that we see here is repentance. In verse 3, Samuel reappears. Have you noticed how conspicuously absent Samuel has been? He was there in chapter 4, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Israel through Samuel. And he was never mentioned in all this hubbub, all the All the sin and the dishonoring of the Lord through chapters 4, 5, and 6, Samuel is nowhere to be found. But now he's back. Remember when we looked at his coming up, if you will, in the house of Eli, that God raised him up to replace the wicked leaders in Israel. 
And four times in this chapter, once in verse 6, and then three more times between verses 13 and 17, the Bible says that Samuel judged the people. Now, the first time, I mean, people in our culture will hear this, and they, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Look at verse 6. It says, we have sinned, the people say we have sinned against the Lord. The very next sentence is, and Samuel judged the people. Now, if you read that with a 21st century cultural lens on, you think that all Samuel is doing is shaking his finger and saying, you awful people, and looking down on them and this kind of thing. No, no, no. A judge was a leader who led people out of idolatry and into faithfulness. They made legal decisions. They even led the people in battle. And so when the Bible says that Samuel judged the people, he is leading them in righteousness. He is leading them for the cause of God. That's why it's so great that it comes after their confession of sin, which we'll get to uh, in a bit. But Samuel is back on the scene, and Samuel is going to lead them in repentance. So let's just read verses 3 to 6. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and, at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. This is a picture of their repentance. Okay? So let me just point out a few things about their repentance will help us as we think about repentance. First, repentance is more than grief. Okay? They don't just lament after the Lord. Of course, repentance is born from godly grief. Genuine repentance includes godly grief, but repentance is more than godly grief. It's more than just weeping over the fact that I've done something wrong. We see that when Samuel knows. Did you notice the first word that Samuel uses when he talks to them? He doesn't look at this nation in a pool of its own tears and say, hey, you've repented. You've returned. What does he say? He says, if, if you are returning to the Lord. Now, that's interesting. If you've ever counseled someone, this is quite a move, isn't it? They come in, they're in a puddle of tears, and you say, well, if you're really repenting, this is what you do. Some people would just pat them on the back and say, you've repented now. Go along your merry way. Of course, godly grief is a part of repentance. But he says, if you are returning with all your heart, he's not necessarily assuming that they aren't returning to the Lord. But he wants them to know that the grief of the last two decades or however long it's been is not enough. There's more. There's more than the tears. There's more than the sorrow. There's more than the longing. There's more than the ritual of fasting. There's more. The return must be with all your heart. So this is exactly what God calls the people to do through the prophet Joel, isn't it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Repentance is deeper than grief. It's deeper than walking around looking sad all the time. Israel, it's deeper than just ripping your garments and having ceremonial fasts. You need to rend your hearts, not just your garments. You don't just need to make a show of your grief. It's more than that. But also, repentance is more than confession. I mean, it includes confession, doesn't it? Certainly it does. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So just think about that. If I am returning to the Lord with all my heart, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, then one of the things I will do is confess my sin. And in the Greek, it means to say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. So if, if we're repenting with all our heart, we will confess, and the Israelites do confess. We have sinned against the Lord. But it seems like we should pause and just be reminded that there are different kinds of confession. Did you know that? Even within this story of First and Second Samuel, there are a couple of different kinds of confession that happen. One is a confession that is aimed at self-preservation. If you flip forward to First Samuel 15, you will see this. First Samuel 15 Saul has sinned. We will get there. We will talk about his sin when we get there. But listen to what he says to Samuel in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. So far, so good, right? But then he keeps going. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And then when he comes back to confess in verse 30 again, he says, I have sinned. Saul, just put a period right there, man. Just put a period. But he does, and he goes on. He says, yet honor me now before the elders of my people. Saul explains his sin. He doesn't simply confess his sin. He explains, it's just because of the fear of the people that I sinned. As if that's not a problem. (laughs) Fear of man is not a good enough reason to sin, because fear of man is sin. We don't confess our... Look, what he's basically said is, okay, 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 I've done wrong. Can we just get things back to the way they were? Okay, can we just do that? I've said I'm sorry. Let's just get things back to the way they were. This is self-preservation. And isn't this the way of confession today? That confession is just seen as some kind of cathartic action, that it makes me feel better to get it off my chest, but then I just want things to go back to the way they were. Husbands who are habitually sinning against their wives or vice versa can see confession as the great solution, the way to save their marriage. If I'll just confess, that's all that has to happen. Isn't it true that leaders, even political leaders, see confession as a way to preserve their office, preserve their power? Okay, I was wrong. Let's move on. But you see, repentance is more than confession. The, other, the kind of confession we see here is a confession that is not aimed at getting self-preservation. It is a confession that comes from humility. You remember later after David commits adultery and murder, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he simply says this, I have sinned against the Lord. 
No explanation. No expectation for it to be glossed over. Just against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And the Israelites here are confessing in humility. They fast, they they actually draw water just to pour it out. Just to demonstrate the pouring out of themselves, their emptiness before the Lord. To demonstrate their humility before Him. Repentance is more than grief. Repentance is more than confession. Repentance takes action. Now, we should not think that repentance is action, okay? Repentance takes action. Repentance produces action, all right? Because if repentance is action, then just trying to change my bad habits, you know, just taking off the bad fruit from the tree and stapling good fruit onto the branches, we'll just call that repentance. That is not repentance at all, okay? Repentance is not sitting on the couch with a fully eaten half gallon of ice cream that you just opened that night and you had one spoon and one person eating it and just saying, man, I got to eat better. That's not repentance. Repentance does that, but then gets up and does something else rather than sit there and eat the ice cream every night. Repentance takes action. I mean, repentance begins, fundamentally, it is a change of mind. It is from thinking my thoughts about God and man and sin these thoughts that are self-originated, that are twisted, that are wrong, that have no connection with the Bible, and instead thinking God's thoughts about God, God's thoughts about man and sin and life. But this kind of radical change will not stay on the inside. It can't. It has to get out. It comes out in our words It comes out in our actions. And Samuel actually tells the people what it will look like. Verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then not just say you're really sincere, not just weep copious tears, take action. Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. <clears throat> Repentance, in other words, will become visible. It doesn't start visible, but it becomes visible. The false gods will be put out. Their altars will be out of business. It'll be like Ephesus when Paul was preaching. There'll be no business for little house gods anymore. There'll be nothing going on. I mean, repentance will mean that, that whole idolatrous uh, economy will shut down. It will mean, as in Acts, the people bringing their books of witchcraft and tossing them into the fire and saying, we don't want anything to do with these anymore. And that's exactly what they do. Did you just, he says, put away the foreign gods, serve him only. What do the people do in verse 4? Put away the gods, serve him only. That's what they do. It was not an easy step. This was already ingrained in their society. And quite frankly, from a fleshly perspective, it would be difficult because the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, these fertility gods, would have included uh, sexual immorality uh, that they would have a hard time turning away from. 
as anyone who has dealt with long-term sexual sin will tell you. It is not just a, it is a fight. But they're going to fight it. They're going to turn away from all of it. They're going to come back. If they had had this hymn, they would have sung William Cooper's uh, Oh for a Closer Walk with God. One of the stanzas says this, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That's repentance. So friend, when you, are, when you are helping another person who wants to walk in repentance, who has sinned, don't, don't use vague generalities like, well, you just need to change. Did you notice that Samuel didn't do that? Samuel didn't say, well, now if you're really returning, you'll change. He gets more specific than that. He says, if you're really returning to the Lord, this is, this is exactly what you should do. Parents with our children, we need to do the same thing. They're doing the wrong thing over and over again. We don't just need to tell them, do, do something different. Get, get it right. Do better. Better is such a weird word. You've got to be specific. Even just telling a child to clean his room is too vague. Because what, is va- what does clean mean? You know, is it like there's nothing on the floor anymore? It's all piled on the bed? Is that clean? What, what does clean mean? Be specific. So if you're helping someone who's seeking to change and you are walking with them, be specific in ways that they ought to change and things that they ought to put off and things that they ought to be putting on. That's exactly what Samuel does. In fact, this is what John the Baptist does. Do you remember when John the Baptist is preaching in Luke chapter 3? He calls out, I mean, this is a strange way to start a baptismal service, but he says, you brood of vipers, right? And then he calls them in Luke 3, 8 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But he doesn't stop there because the crowd won't let him. They say, well, what are we supposed to do? So he tells the crowds what they should do, and he tells the soldiers what they should do, and he tells the tax collectors what they should do. This is what the fruit of repentance will look like in your life. Repentance is more than grief and it's more than confession because if repentance is from our heart, it takes action. It takes action. One more implication. Just think about your relationships. Think about your friendships, your marriage, Uh, parent to child, child to parent. When we sin against one another, having first sinned against God, we don't simply repent toward God. We repent in that relationship. Whatever it was we did that broke the fellowship of that relationship, we need to repent. We need to, our mind needs to be changed about how we act in that relationship, how we speak in that relationship, and we need to take action. So when you sin and you Go to confess. First of all, don't use ifs, ands, or buts, okay? Because those have no place in a confession. Well, I did this, but you did that. That's not confession. Well, I did this, but I wouldn't have done it if. Don't use if. The point of confession is to say the same thing about sin that God says, which is that my sin is my responsibility, 
Not anybody else's. Nobody can make you sin. I hate to break it to you, but nobody can make you sin. You cannot be so put into a corner that you will necessarily sin against God. There is no such situation that exists. But as we go to confess, we ought to say what we've done. We ought to actually say that we hate that we've done it, that it grieves us that we've done it, that we are sorrowful, and ask for forgiveness. But also we should commit to do things differently. We should. I was harsh with you. And I was harsh with you just because I wasn't getting my way and my sin, I just sinned against you. And there is no excuse for it and I hate it. And I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I will not. I will seek to not do this again. I do not want to hurt you again. I do not want to sin against God again. Well, now you say, Toby, that sounds very cumbersome. I mean, you say you're what you did. You say you're sorrowful. You say uh, you'll change. You ask for forgiveness. All these things. That sounds very cumbersome. Well, maybe, but I, but I want you to think about the person receiving the confession. Don't think about yourself and how cumbersome it is. Think about the person receiving that confession and how it serves them to know that you really understand what you've done. And how loving it is for them to know that you hate what you've done against them and that you're committed to not doing it again. Repentance takes action. It actually takes action no matter what it takes. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 9? He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, this is not meant to be taken as some literal removal of body parts. It is a hyperbole to say, whatever it takes to repent, you must do it. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is not optional. It's not optional if you're coming to Jesus, and it's not optional if you're seeking to live for Jesus. Oh, yeah, I repented way back when. No, 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 no. So long as we are wrestling with sin, we need to be prepared to repent. Repentance is part of the rhythm of life for one who is fighting the battle against sin. And the good news is that when sinners repent, God responds in mercy. Now, before we move on, I want to be very clear here. Repentance does not obligate God to be merciful. Get that into our minds. God, mercy, uh, repentance does not obligate God to be merciful. God is not obligated to do anything. He is God. Yet he has said that the condition that will receive his mercy is the repentant heart. The, the publican who prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So imagine if I have an empty mug up here. The, the fact that it is empty does not obligate it, obligate me to fill it with coffee. Okay? But the mug must be empty in order to fill it. 
That is the condition that I need. I need nothing else in the mug except emptiness. And repentance in some ways is emptying, emptying of ourselves, emptying of our love of sin, emptying love of self, emptying our opposition to God like the Israelites poured out the water. We empty ourselves in repentance so that we may be filled with God's mercy. And here's the thing, no matter how deep that mug of sin is, God's mercy is more. Our sins are many. I mean, we could have one of those Hobby Lobby mugs, you know, that's like three feet wide and two feet deep. I don't know what anybody does with a mug that large, except you could just, just keep filling it and filling it and filling it and filling it, and God's mercy is more. That's why, it, that's why Paul prays that we will understand the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of God's love, because no matter how deep and wide and high and long our sin is, His arms of love reach around it and take it in mercy and bear it in His own body on the tree that we might be made right with God. God responds to repentance with mercy, and that brings us to the third word, which is sal- the third heading, which is salvation. So we had godly grief, repentance, and salvation. You see, the Philistines get word that the Israelites are gathered at Mizpah, and they are going to take advantage of it. It is time to pounce. Look at verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. That sentence is so wonderful. Samuel cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered. Friends, salvation came through a mediator. They counted on this mediator to go before God and make their case. And Jesus Christ is our mediator. He is our advocate. He is greater than Samuel. Because not only does he go before God and make our case, he is the whole burnt offering. He is burnt up in the fires of the wrath of God so that we may be saved from our enemies. You see, in the past, they had tried to manipulate God. Now, they humbly cry out to God. And the whole burnt offering is a signal that they are fully devoted to the Lord. They, they, they have turned from the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They are serving Him only. And even then, they know they don't deserve anything, which is why they're still crying out to the Lord. They haven't like pulled the lever that gives automatic. They go before the Lord and they say, Lord, help us. Samuel, cry out for us. They are desperate. But one commentator said it so well. He said, desperation is never in trouble when it rests on omnipotence. Desperation is never in trouble when it rests on omnipotence. And such is the case here. As Samuel, verse 10, was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. 
I mean, just imagine, imagine this scene. The smoke is still rising from the offering, you see. There have been no, you know, smoke-filled boardrooms creating war strategies. Not a sword has been drawn. Not a spear has been thrust. The Lord simply thunders against His enemies and defeats them. Another indication, the Lord doesn't need them at all. And it's only then that Israel gets to share in the victory. Look at verse 11. Then the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth That is so great. The Lord thunders against the enemies. You remember the enemy that will kill and drag you to hell? It is sin itself. And God has thundered against that sin, thundered against it in the body of His own Son on the cross, thundered His mighty and furious wrath there so that we might escape. We are just sitting there and the offering is happening and we can't do anything. We can't draw a sword. We can't thrust a spear. We can do no good works. We can't do anything about it. And God has won the complete victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have victory. You see, in this life, sin is still present, but because Jesus has died and is raised again, the power of sin is broken. I am no longer a slave to sin. Because Jesus won that victory, I can actually take up the sword and start mortifying the deeds of the body. And not only that, no matter how far I get in that battle, in the end, because Jesus has died and been raised again, the presence of sin will be eradicated from my existence when I get there with Him. And then I will truly know maybe something that I only acknowledge here, and that is that sin was far worse than suffering. And then the salvation of God is commemorated. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. It's interesting. Chapter 4 ended with a name too. Chapter 4 ends with Ichabod because the glory had departed. And chapter 7, as it were, ends with a different name, Ebenezer, because the Lord has been their help. He says, till now the Lord has helped us. This phrase looks back, not even just on this, not even just on this battle. I mean, think about where Israel has come from the calling of Abram to the rescue from slavery in Egypt through the sustenance in the wilderness and God tolerating their ridiculous hard-heartedness and their grumbling and their complaining, giving them victory in the land, giving them the land, rescuing them over and over and over again through the judges. Till now, God has been our help. Even when they walked away from God, do you know how God helped them when they walked away from God? He afflicted them so they would see their need for God. Even that was help from God. 
The defeat, the first defeat in chapter 4 was help from God so they could see they can't do it by making God a good luck charm. The affliction at Beth Shemesh is because they cannot just take God lightly and just glance at the ark as if it's just another piece of furniture. It's like David in Psalm 38. His body is shutting down. He's mourning all day. He can't, he's sad day and night. He's, he's out of energy. He's alone. He's just completely experiencing all these things in his body. And he says it's because God's hand is heavy on him because of his sin. God is so committed to conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ that He will afflict us when we just continually wander away so that we will see we cannot, we cannot do this. Our affliction should be, should be a signal that we need the Lord more than ever, not what is God doing to me, but how can, how can I just rely on God and trust Him and turn and change and be who God wants me to be, whether this affliction ever lifts or not. Adam Stuckey would tell you he would not be the man of faith that he is today without leukemia. He wouldn't know the Lord as he knows him apart from it. What will it take in our lives before we see that? God comes and saves them. Till now the Lord has been our help. But isn't it interesting when you just say that? Well, till now the Lord has been our help. It's not like, well, this is over. This is where the help ends. No, it's just like till now, the Lord has helped us. In other words, there's this eagerness that beyond that last period is, and he will continue. That's why they're setting up the memorial in the first place, so they can remember as they go forward, the God who helped them then will help them now. It looks to the future. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. They might be walking, walking around this stone singing, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." You see, together as a church, we commemorate Jesus' victory over sin every month, don't we? We gather around the Lord's table. We take the bread and the cup. And on the front of our communion table, it reads, Do this in remembrance of me. But you know what it could just as well read? Till now the Lord has helped us. His greatest help came on the cross. And he who gave up his son for us, how will he not with, all thing, with everything give us all things? How will he not do that? How can we not rely on him moving forward? Godly grief produces repentance that brings salvation. We will be saved from our enemies. The enemy has been slain by Jesus. Do you need to repent today? If you're a Christian, is there some sin that you are tolerating that you ought to be repenting of? Is there some relationship you need to make right? If you're not a Christian, I wonder, do you want the forgiveness that Jesus offers? Do you want the mercy of God? It will not happen apart from your repentance. Don't waste another day. Don't waste another day. Turn to the Lord now. Turn to Him with all your heart. Put away everything that keeps you from Him. Call on Him, and He will have mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. God mercifully saves repentant sinners. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you and we are thankful that in our lost and desperate and helpless condition, you came to us that you have granted us repentance and thus your mercy, mercy to escape the wrath that we deserve. Lord, we are in awe of you, a God who mercifully saves repentant sinners. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to be a people, a church that walks in repentance, that doesn't see repentance as a one-time transaction, but as a continual attitude of the heart. Help us to hate sin. Help us to love holiness. Help us to grieve with godly grief when we do sin. I pray that any relationships that are among us within this church or that extend beyond us to our family and friends, any of these that are wrong because of our sin, that we will obey you and in repentance take action to make things right. Lord, we are thankful and we are humbled by the fact that you are not obligated to show us mercy at all, and yet you do. Thank you, Lord. And as your people who have been shown mercy, help us then to show mercy to one another. We pray in the name of our merciful and beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.